Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So holidays, as many of you know, um, are a lot like life. They have a lot of joy and not so much joy. A lot of pleasant and a lot of unpleasant. And sometimes they bring up emotions that we don't think should be around on the holidays, like loss or other things like that. Um, Families can be stressful. So Casey and I like to do some talks around the support in this time, however it was for you. Um, and we're going into more holidays, so we'll talk more about that. I think a week or two ago, uh, Casey and I uh, conducted an all-day on um, metta, loving-kindness, and we hadn't done that before in Long Beach, and I was really struck by the peaceful quality of the retreat, and the restorative quality, the calm that came out of that retreat, the ease, just on practice and focus of metta. I know a few of you were there. Would you say? I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with their, their calming people. So, obviously, um, we found that this is um, worthwhile to do in the community for a day, and, and, and we'll try to do it again. But it made me reflect a little more on the practice of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, and um, the benefits of the simple practice. In some ways, it's simple. And so I um, wanted to share with you um, some of the teachings I have a lot of them, but I won't share all of them today. Um, on the Brahma Viharas, um, one of the teachers that I really like is John Peacock. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He's not from this country. but um, So we'll talk a little bit about it. So the Buddha teaches us that we practice to be liberated, to be freed from greed, aversion, and delusion. And it's the waking up to um, that which keeps us bound, right? What keeps us bound is this tendency towards greed, aversion, and delusion. Um, and we, we really, in the practice, we're choosing how we want to live in this world, what we want to lean into in our mind states and our way of being. What I really notice about this issue of greed, aversion, delusion, that our culture, Western culture, just, um, it's filled with it. We, it's part of parcel of our way of being in the world and culture. The greed of um, wanting more and more, the greed of wanting the next thing, the next moment, to be better than the other one. This belief that if I get more, I'll be happier, or my life will be better. Happiness and greed in Western culture are real tied in. I mean, there was a while I felt if my kitchen had granite, I'd be happier. <laughs> right? Sometimes we do things like that. You know, that new car is going to make me happier. Um, so the culture really reinforces this idea that happiness and consumption go together, doesn't it? You know, food, buying, clothing, I mean, just name it. And um, it's, it's certainly not helping our environmental problem, this greed, this consuming conspicuous consuming. So the culture brings us there. You know, it's this collective delusion of happiness. The Buddha teaches, is this happiness? 
He asks, right? Is this happiness? More and more and more. Are you happy? It's a good question to stop and ask, right? Um, aversion. It's easy for us to live in aversive states, in this low-grade dissatisfaction, whether it's uh, anxiety and worry about what's going to happen next, or are we going to be okay, um, or reinforcing and ruminating on what's not working for us or what's not working in our workplace or the world or our family, what's going wrong, the news. Right? It, you can just walk around with this low-grade inner dialogue that beneath the surface is reporting to you how things are wrong. You're wrong, or your family member is wrong, or an argument that you had, or your paycheck is wrong, whatever it is. Something's wrong. Your body's wrong. And because of the way the brain is hardwired, we believe with the default network, it's actually natural to do that. That the brain doesn't really rest. It looks for problems to solve. It's threat-based. So we think we want to rest, and the brain is giving you a list of what needs to get fixed and why you can't fix it because you're inadequate sometimes. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the aversion that we inherit from our families, our, our culture, our neighborhoods, um, sometimes our religion, our schools, about um, who's the, who are the good people, who are the bad people, who are the people we shouldn't like, or the standards that we should have. We've always talked a lot about that in here, but there's just an aversion that we inherit. Um, some families have like these ongoing wars, who we talk to and who we don't. You know, who are the people we should invite and the people we shouldn't? Um, who are the people we like and the people we don't like? Who we think is a success and who we think is a failure? This all is a version of some kind. So we swim in these states. And the delusion is that fogginess that we walk around in a lot of times just not knowing. Right? Just not knowing. And um, we certainly... Uh, the Buddha teaches, um, Buddhist psychology, that um, we don't even really know the impermanence of ourselves in life or um, just the, the type of suffering that we swim in. Uh, we know that there's a lot of cultural delusion, again. So, so it's a good question to ask. How do we wish to live in this world? And how do we wish to dwell in this world? And um, the practice of the Brahma Viharas gives us like an open window or a doorway, a new way to be, a new way to practice, or a different way to approach life. And I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again. One day I woke up grumbling. Have you woken up grumbling? Mm. Yeah, that flavor. It's almost like your complaint department opens 30 minutes before you wake up <laughs> and there's a long line of complaints your awareness or you can't even get to the coffee it's just starting in and so i had a morning like that just one many and uh, it was particularly loud um yeah i was going through a stressful time maybe and I had a lot of complaints the complaint department was open and i was getting ready in the morning and the, the complaints were going on and on. The list was going on and on. And it went from somewhere, it went from what's wrong to what I deserve, which is even more dangerous, <laughs> what I should have. And it was getting louder and louder. And I was combing my hair in the mirror. And next to me, I have this big lucite jewelry box with all the beads from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Do you have one of those? And on top of it, I had a little Buddha. And uh, as I was complaining loudly and listing what I should have in my life and how come I don't have it, I really should have it, building this very strong sense of self and entitlement and building a very dark story. 
the comb slipped out of my hand, hit the Buddha in the head, <laughs> and dislodged the Buddha's head. <laughs> I sliced the Buddha. <laughs> I killed the Buddha. <laughs> it was a good message, right? Causes and conditions. So, um, so this was a great moment a good example of how do we want to practice? What do we want to focus on, right? What I don't have, what I don't like, what I should have, this ruminating darkness, or do I want to land in a different place? And metta is one way that we land in a different place. We're kind of leaning the mind towards tranquility and ease. It's a different definition of happiness, isn't it? Because sometimes happiness is about getting more and having more, a goal-oriented thing, right? But happiness can also be ease, peace, calm, accepting things the way they are, being with things as they are. And one of the ways that we simply can practice metta is by um, opening to the way things are with a friendliness. That is really the definition of metta, is a friendliness. It's, we call it loving kindness, but it's really an intimate friendliness, an open-hearted way of relating to ourselves, to the parts of ourselves we like, that we don't like, that we don't want to see, and to others. So the first place to practice metta is to open with friendliness to whatever is arising. Even if, it's a ver even if it is aversion or delusion or greed, right? To be friendly towards us, hey, oh, it's here. It's arrived. And to be open and curious, to welcome it with an open heart. And through the practice of metta, loving kindness or friendliness, kindness, we really learn to hold these difficult states with an open and loving heart. We welcome it. And whether we're practicing the phrases or we're just radiating kindness or we have an attitude of care and love and sweetness for ourselves um, and for others, it's another way to be in the world. It's a new doorway. It's a new window. It's a new way to hold ourselves. Um, and... Uh, during that retreat, we did a period of metta practice for the difficult part of ourselves. We gave metta to that difficult part. It's usually, and I did it with you. And it was such a sweet moment to say, I care for this. I care for you. I care for the thing that's hard to see or hold. That opening and turning. This is true metta. We're creating a field in which we can relax and breathe and calm. And I would suspect that this is probably a definition of happiness on some level. This is a happiness. And these moments come. They're so precious. And our culture, um, our collective unconscious, I like to say, dismisses. And we don't see just the core sweetness that's there. So yesterday we had our little Saturday sit. And um, sometimes we go out to eat afterwards. And uh, we were, a few of us were sitting in the restaurant just eating lunch. And um, there's just a moment of being with everyone that was simple. You've had that too didn't have an agenda, didn't want anything, um, really just appreciated the presence of everyone. Just have calm ease, calm ease, a soft, kind awareness. Right? So it's awareness with kindness. It's receptive. And that is a form of happiness and nurturance that um, I think we all have as a natural state. We just need to tune in a little bit more. And it's good to take those moments. They're nourishing. 
I did a little cheat with you of um, peeking during the meditation and just taking everyone in, just seeing the sweetness of every being, just being open, metta, loving kindness. You know, just sitting there, there's a kindness that seeps in because it's a natural state, who we are. So by working with this, we're, we're cultivating ways that we can dwell in the world. And um, you can ask yourself, what eyes am I looking out at myself in the world? Like, what are, what are the eyes that I'm looking through? Am I looking through greed, wanting, wanting something, having an agenda, pushing around, right? Or am I looking through kindness? Am I looking through pushing it away and rejecting and holding on and grasping? Or am I just looking through kindness for the other and myself? Or am I, um, you know, lost in my thoughts and stuck in my head? And I'm not really here. I don't really know what's going on with you. Right. Or I'm stuck in the past or I'm in a past. Or am I just being with you in kindness? It's a, it's a really new window for a lot. You know, it's that simple. So we can look with the eyes of kindness, of metta. And uh, there's from the 14th century, um, so there's metta, <coughs> kindness, karuna, compassion is the next one. And we've done a lot of talks and classes on compassion. And then mudita, which is joy which sometimes doesn't get a lot of airtime because we're so busy talking about metta and compassion. So we'll talk a little more about that. And equanimity, upeka. So these are the divine abodes of practice. And there was a 14th century uh, teacher, I think from the Tibetan tradition, and he wrote, um, the beautiful bloom of compassion grows out of the soil of friendliness. We water it with tears of joy in the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. So they all work together. Right? And we're cultivating the soil of friendliness internally and externally. And um, what I love about the Brahma Vihara practice, um, the divine abode practice, is that um, it's relational. You know, it's not just a sitting on the cushion with ourselves. It is with ourselves, but it's what's going on between me and you and our world. I learned how important it was to practice this in very stressful situations. It's good to bring the Brahma Viharas in. Um, someone asked me yesterday at lunch, well, did you sit for a month in a retreat? I haven't done that in 20 or 30 years. But what I sat in is a um, high-stress uh, psychiatry clinic in the inner city with limited resources. And I realized that was my monastery. That was my retreat. <laughs> it lasted 10 years. But I learned the importance of metta, loving-kindness. So I want to move on to talk about mudita, joy. Because we don't always talk about that um, in uh, our Dharma talks. So mudita is um, known as appreciative joy, a soft joy. And we're asked to cultivate a joy for the happiness of others, for the well-being of others. So when someone in front of you is joyful and celebrating something, um, we experience their joy as our joy. It's a great, it's a great way to be, I have to say, because what, and, and very often people don't like practicing mudita, appreciative joy. It's not one that they feel they need to cultivate. But when you think about how awful jealousy feels mm -hmm. and envy, it sort of feels like a cold or a flu. It's quite unpleasant. There's some suffering in it. And the practice of mudita lifts that. It's really fun once we get the sweetness of that practice. 
to really dwell in happiness for others' happiness is very sweet, really light. And um, it's a great way to expand joy. And I think for practice, we need to have mindfulness of joy. It's like the juice. Um, in my, my Indian guru teacher used to call it rasa, the juice of your practice is joy. You know, it, it warms up your practice. And so we can also have appreciative joy for what we have, the things we have. So we want to get out of that default network that's telling us what we don't have and what the problems are and practice that mudita for what we do have. The simple, small joys, the big joys, the joy that's there. The joy of just um, living in a society that is generally, I'm learning to have mudita driving around saying, you know, through neighborhoods, there's relative peace here. People are able to walk in the streets relatively. There are problems with violence, I'm not, minimizing. But day to day, most of us are experiencing a relative peace. We can shop and get what we need. Um, We have shelter. Not all of us, and all of us should, but a lot of us have these very basic things, and we're not struggling as as people are in many parts of the world. So um, it's good to stop and see the wonder and joy in just these small moments. And I learned that from my uh, meditation teacher 30, 40 years ago. She um, was a very popular teacher, very charismatic. So a lot of people, if she'd show up, maybe a thousand people would come, 800. She grew really popular, huge crowds. And um, she taught all over the world. And yet, if you were with her, she it didn't matter how many people were in that hall or were waiting, she'd stop for that flower, for that baby, that kid, that bumblebee, the rain. Like, her gratitude for rain, for a flower, uh, for the work that people did, for a child running and laughing, for the lake or a statue, it was all there. Like it, she gave it time. Like she had all the time in the world. She savored and appreciated everything, and she didn't take anything for granted. It was very. It's there's awareness needing joy, right? To sense and feel what that's like in your body, and letting ourselves be nurtured and having that. letting ourselves have that sweet moment. And, and the, the sacredness in those moments, because they're impermanent, they're going to come and go. But while they're there, to really savor. Um, and John Peacock likes to say, um, for sometimes in our practice, it's a neglected dimension feeling the life from the heart. And um, he says that um, artists really know this because they stop and look at things and to do their art, if, whether you're a photographer, a fine art, and you, or you're a poet. We have some wonderful poets here. And um, <coughs> with that, you savor. You know, you're really pausing and taking in that object and being still with it really connecting on a deep level. If you're painting a flower or a rose or photographing or writing a poem about it. And um, his point is, if if we did a lot more of that and we weren't on the phone and um, the TV and, you know, every 30 seconds or 10 seconds going on image after image after image, how would it be different? So this is an invitation to practice mudita, appreciative joy, in your life, your appreciation, and with that, um, practicing the gratitude. And the last one is equanimity. And equanimity in um, 
the Theravadan way of teaching, it comes last in these um, states of awakening. And in Zen, it comes first. So you can pick. And um, it's that ability to rest in the middle of things, even when they're chaotic, to find this rest, to find this pause. It's an absence of reactivity. And um, the image that we like to use is like balancing. It's poise and balance. And um, I think it's Shakespeare, the slings and arrows of our outrageous fortune. You know, every day life brings us pleasant moments, unpleasant moments, disappointment. You know, just think about how one day there's so much up and down. There's traffic, there's no traffic, I didn't like the lunch, it was too expensive, it was great, I didn't like what he said, I loved what he said, right? To find that balance that can ride in the middle of things. So, um, in the midst of things, now, the, the key to this is that equanimity doesn't come from being disengaged or detached. It comes from being fully engaged. And um, it's just being able to hold that space that, that we don't get so ruffled by um, the comings and goings of things. So when I went on my meta practice for, uh, I've been on a few, one for a week, one for 10 days, and I always come back saying to myself, I'm going to practice equanimity. It's equanimity is the thing to do, you know, not to lose it. I'm going to repeat the phrases and I'm going to read inspirational things. And that's where my laminating comes in. <laughs> I've laminated equanimity meditations several times and uh, I've given them to people. <laughs> Let's practice. I put them on my desk at work. Like, I'm going to do these phrases. I'm going to reflect on calm. And um, the more I tried to uh, practice the phrases, the more I would lose them and um, not see them. And I really feel that sometimes your failure in practice, where you're trying to practice and you just can't, is where the biggest lesson is. Right? It's, it's that pointer. It's, it's the uh, trailhead. It really teaches you something when you're really trying to do something. Right? That's the trailhead, and it's not happening. And I realized for myself that um, some of us who are highly sensitive beings, Anybody in the room highly sensitive? <laughs> Emotional sponge, right? And also big hearts. We, we really want good for the world. We don't like injustice, right? We don't like to see people suffer. A lot of people like this, and Joel will laugh, but it's hard to go to a movie that has violence in it because it's so personal, <laughs> like, you know, we're so sensitive sometimes, something like this, or you don't like to see people suffering. So for people like that, equanimity is not an easy practice, because in our hearts, we want everyone not to suffer. We really want it by the nature of our being. And I believe that we can call it, sometimes it gets called codependency, <laughs> right? Or, or what does it call, caregiver syndrome, or what, poor boundaries. It gets a lot of bad rap, you know? That, that deep desire for everyone not to suffer. And we suffer when they suffer. You know, we're lost in compassion sometimes. Swimming in it to the point of pain. Do you identify with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I very much land there. The uh, being an empath and having too much empathy almost. And uh, that doesn't serve. It doesn't work so well. We get exhausted and burnt out and contracted and overwhelmed. And we don't even help very well from that state. It just took a long time for me to notice and make friends with that part of me that doesn't want anyone to suffer sometimes. Or that um, 
you know, sometimes we just want to give too much or fix in ways we can't fix. And we're not really looking at um, the letting go that needs to happen. So this laminating and handing and doing the phrases wasn't working for a long time in my practice because um, there needed to be some tenderness and metta toward that one who um, just wants to fix and repair in a boundless way. I, th I feel it's a very pure place, but it needs limits too, right? That it needs limits too. There's a part in which we're um, kind of powerless and need to let go. And that's where the equanimity is. So we're going to stop in a moment. And I, the way I thought we would um, do a little equanimity practice, some reflection, and I'll guide you through it and pick a few phrases. And then if you want to lose this piece of paper as much as I have, you can come up and take a picture of it. And it's easier to have it on your phone. You can't lose it as easily. I've learned that. So. But play with it. You know, that part that doesn't want to let go, right? That wants things to be the way we want it, even though it's kind and filled with compassion. So, finding a comfortable posture and closing your eyes for a moment. And taking a moment to recall a time where you felt yourself caring deeply for the pain of another. Your good intentions, your desire for them to be well. Maybe your desire to try to fix something or influence someone to change. Or just your heart met their pain, their suffering. And reflect upon and see that as a goodness of your heart, a sweetness of your own heart, the ways you've wanted to help all beings, to help your loved ones, to help yourself. Even noticing that you've had challenges you've had to face and challenges that you continue to face. Even sensing the challenges and the challenging quality of life itself from day to day. and opening to the heart and mind that also wants balance, that wants ease. That wants to rest in the middle of challenge. And if you like, you can calmly Repeat the phrase silently on the inside with a soothing in-breath. Remind yourself or give yourself this wish. May I be balanced in challenge. May I find balance in challenge. May I be at peace in the midst of things. May I be at peace 
in challenging times. And may I see the world with quiet eyes. May I find rest in the center of change, knowing all things change. People, things, nature, nations, planets and stars, perception, reality, all things change. And knowing this, may I offer my care my presence without conditions. Knowing my care may be met with gratitude or indifference. And may I offer my care and compassion knowing I cannot control the course of life or suffering. And deeply I know I care about your pain, yet I cannot control it. as I care about my own pain, and yet at times I cannot control it. And on the in-breath breathing in, you have yours. On the exhale, I have mine. interesting practice to take with you during this holiday time, the days ahead. Just breathing in, you have yours. Breathing out, I have mine. And then letting the metta be there, letting the friendliness be there. But a friendliness that doesn't have an agenda for someone, for us, for ourselves or the other, but can rest in the middle can just rest in the middle. And in that way, we can really get the happiness, the sustenance, the nurturance that we seek, the peace, the ease, by resting right in the middle. We open to kindness, and we let go of wanting it to be a certain way. And that's where these practices all line up, right there in that spot, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. It's a liberating path. Because in those moments, there's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Check it out.
So we don't have time for small groups and we're a big crowd. So um, how about if we do some group share? Tell us what your practice is like of the Brahma Viharas, if you practice or anything that has come up for you or how you're practicing. Who would like to share? Um, I met a distant cousin who I misread, and he was speaking um, sociologically, and I took it personally and tried to kill him, but not really. <laughs> but to tell him with my words how he was mistaken. And the more I think about it, the more I realized after talking to him that it was his hunger for knowledge that I misread. And it was my protection of my deceased mother that I was still protecting. And I can breathe in his pain and breathe out mine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have a neighbor who started falling, she's 75, about a week ago, and um, it's had a lot of challenges, and I've been doing all kinds of things to help her out, um, and the things are kind of nasty, um, and it's been, uh, it's been an interesting process, I figure, of anywhere to practice, and why not there, but um, it's been kind of hard sometimes, you know, just exhausting, because she's alone and she's 75 and she's um, made she's made some pretty specific health choices she smokes a lot she eats whatever she wants and you know it's just like she she's you know likes being alone so um, these are all things that are you know coming to bear as she's dealing with um, her health challenges and it's been it's been interesting for me as a um, person who's been caregiving um, and accepting her choices and um, trying to support her and cleaning up after her. Yeah, that's a great example of um, equanimity in service of another. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I can think of a few times where I've cared too much uh, to the point where I was hateful, um, where I was uh, helping, my intention was to help someone I care about. Um, and it just, um, I didn't realize it at that time, but I ended up burning out because of how much I was caring or helping this and I got so burned out that it affected me many layers. So that's one example. Another example where I cared too much, where it was painful, where it ended up being painful, was where I cared too much for myself. And this is what it looked like because my, my whole intention was, you know, practice self-care. Um, and so... Um, you know, I practice meditation, practice yoga, take classes that help me, you know, keep a peaceful mind. And um, there was a period where I was, um, I was so tight on my practice that I was literally, like almost every single evening, dedicating my time to go to a yoga class, to come here or somewhere else to do a meditation practice, to go to another place. And I was so exhausted that I got burned out. Mm -hmm. Luckily, at that time, it didn't really affect me in so many layers. But um, I was really tight with, you know, I have to do this because it's self-care and it's going to make me feel good. But it really wasn't. <laughs> so fast forward now, um, 
I noticed that, you know, again, very dedicated to like the practices that I have, but I started noticing that I was getting really tired. And so I decided to keep my practices, but modify them. So for example, instead of driving to go to a yoga class, practice yoga at home instead, right? So just like little things like that, or like just making the intention to like, really like in the morning, like, you know, just make the time to like practice in the morning or in the evenings or in between like my driving time. Um, so that's just like an example of, of um, you know, still um, fulfilling the intentions that I have, but still having the freedom and space, mm -hmm. finding the middle way. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Good examples. Yeah. Um, recently, I was driving in rush hour traffic and found myself suffering, thinking about all the things I needed to do and, and whether or not I was going to arrive where I needed to arrive before they closed. And I use a Zen technique uh, in Chiyogi Zen, they use mantras. Uh, it's the only form of Zen. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, so I start using this mantra, and uh, I'm just repeating it over and over again. And I'm not thinking about the future, what I need to do. I'm not thinking about traffic used to be better. Um, when the cars stop, I stop. When the cars go, I go. My mind is just reflecting what's there. And, you know, there is no self. In this moment, there is no self. There is no other. There is no place. You know, I'm just in the moment, and I'm not suffering. And so I think um, if you cut off thought, it's an excellent way of, as thought succeeds thought, if you just let go of all of them, you become more dispassionate. And the means approximate the ends. Um, you know, when we become enlightened, we realize there is no self. And if you're not thinking, there is no self. If you cut off thought, there is no self. There are no problems. Um, and it's just a way to slow down the fight or flight. And I had read something years ago um, by a Zen master, and all of a sudden it, it it's almost like I read it. It's like I wrote it, you know, because it, it made sense to me uh, that the 84,000 dharmas are basically to correct the 84,000 problems that we cause for ourselves by thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so if you cut off thinking, you have no use of the dharma. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, oh, that's what he's talking about. It, it, I read it a million times, but at that moment, it made a lot of sense to me. Thank you. Time for... Yeah. I have a blended family, and um, my two boys, uh, you know, my first has been raised by my second mother. But this holiday, my five-year-old asked that all he wanted was to be with all of his family. And his dad's never really been in the picture, but we invited him and his girlfriend and a bunch of their extended family to celebrate with us. And um, I was a little nervous going in, but set positive intentions. And then the girlfriend showed up with a very aggressive tattoo that's right across her chest that um, triggered me quite deeply. But um, I went outside under the full moon Thanksgiving night. We had a peaceful Thanksgiving day, but you could feel, you know, the tension. Um, that said, I went out under the full moon and I practiced meta for like three hours on every single person there. And on Friday, and yesterday, it was like a completely different experience for all of us. Mm -hmm. We left like super close. Like it was such a healing experience. Mm -hmm. And my son is on cloud nine. Well, if you had told that story in the beginning, we wouldn't have had to have the whole talk for it. <laughs> ah, there was a good definition of meta, right? Beautiful. Thank you. Ooh, Ardent atheist, um, like, like this across the chest, it just kind of triggered me. <laughs>
What's this? What's this? What's this? And what's the other part? Isn't it don't know? What's this don't know? Yeah. You cut off yeah. the don't know, and then you can even cut off the this. If oh, you're sitting and meditating and just say what? Keep a don't know mind. It's a good mantra for meditating, too. What is this? Don't know. Exactly. Inhale, what is this? Exhale, don't know. Yeah. It's a really nice one to practice. All right. Well, oh, yes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> New I'm gonna, tradition. I'm in <laughs> <laughs> a profession that has uh, a great prevalence of compassion burnout, mm-hmm. which uh, leaves a lot of room for anger and hate to arise. I've struggled with faith for about 30 years and um, had a transition in my life where I am searching. Um, and I've had some people say, you should meditate. You should go to this. And I'm like, okay, so I'm learning to meditate. So this is very new to me. And the practice that I'm hearing, it sounds like my wife said, He's going through this. Share your thing for this. It sounds like you're speaking to me right now. So I feel like I'm in the right place. So thank you. Yeah, I was going to say and be coy about it. Um, when you're in a compassion burnout kind of job, don't bother laminating. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.